Okay, welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC, True History of the Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natali, and with me is co-host... Sarah. And... Uh, Frank Castillo, glad to be back as a, as a guest. Yes, special guest Frank I, Castillo. I hope that we do not have to revisit the previous race walking... Uh, Field. I don't. They must have stopped after the last <laughs> set of games. I can't remember. I don't even think they had race walking this time. Perfect. Let's move. Uh, <laughs> let's move into the. Let's move into the context then. Okay. Um. So yeah, we're start. We're talking about London, nineteen oh eight, which is the longest Olympics in human history. But it's not as bad as St. Louis, and we'll get into why. So. Longest, but not as... That was the one with no set start or end date, right? Right. St. Louis really hasn't necessarily ended yet. <laughs> no, they, I mean, the fair ended, so they're like, well, mm. it ended. Okay. Like, they didn't have a closing ceremonies, but it still ended. Um, and yeah, we're almost done with the pre-World War One games, which is significant because after World War One, uh, when they started up again in 1920, there were a lot of very significant changes, which we'll see when we get to Antwerp. But we have two more to go before that, and this is one of them. And this is going to be, I think, about two episodes here. So, London 1908 is generally not counted among the farces of Paris 1900 and St. Louis 1904. However, that doesn't mean the sailing was as smooth as it is, as it was in other, in ugh, as it was in either of the Athenian games. First of all, they weren't supposed to be in London at all. <laughs> This is a good start. Yeah, they were supposed to be in Rome. So, but like the British didn't steal it the way the St. Louis guys. Oh, stole that's weird because the British tend to steal a lot of things <laughs> and put them in London. This actually wasn't the case this time. So it was supposed to be in Rome, and that was the decision made in 1904. De Coubertin was in favor. King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy was in favor. The mayor of Rome was in favor. Pope Pius X was in favor. The one opposed was Prime Minister Giovanni Giletti. And he was the one who got to decide the budget. <laughs> um, also, listeners, I apologize if you hear road sounds of, like, trucks and stuff, but it's really freaking hot, and we already turned off the fan, and there's <laughs> only we'll so much... so much. So much sacrifices I'm willing to make here. Um, anyway, uh, Prime Minister Giovanni Giletti... Uh, was the one who got to decide the budget. He didn't want to spend the money on the Olympics when he had things like infrastructure, when he had infrastructure projects like aqueduct, aqueducts and land reclamation to fund. I am sympathetic to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ruining a city's economy to have the Olympics is a pretty common problem. I can't really fault them for not wanting to yeah. start engaging with it. They actually start considering it in 1912. This wasn't even really a thing that they were quite aware of how bad it was yet. And they start to get an inkling. I started research in 1912 already, so I'm going to be foreshadowing, I guess. But, they, but like, um, spoilers for, like, the rest of this podcast. They never solve this problem. <laughs> so, anyway. It was clear, it was already clear by December of 1906 that the games would not be in Rome, although de Coubertin was cagey about it, referring to the situation as, quote, certain specific difficulties we encountered in Rome and which we have to keep, we had to keep secret. <laughs> However, in April of 1906, Mount Vesuvius erupted, providing everybody involved with a convenient excuse to move the games. <laughs> I mean, a volcano didn't stop them last time. 
because it wasn't it was a lot closer to rome than it was to athens Hmm. and even in athens they were having effects from it so uh also convenient was the 1906 intercalated games the ones that ioc doesn't want to admit ever happened uh, which we covered in the last episode because the entire ioc was in athens along with the Olympic committees of all the nations that could possibly host the 1908 Games. And uh, there among them was the richest, most powerful nation in the world at the time, Great Britain. And you remember the yacht full of English noblemen fencers? Yeah, that ran over one of the... um, uh, Didn't they run over someone in the... No, they didn't run over anybody. Mm. They just hung out in the harbor and had a, like, jolly old time while everybody else was in, like, the warehouse of athletes that they say is an Olympic village. All right, anyway, um, those guys were a big part of these discussions. Among, along with King Edward VII, who was conveniently in town for the Olympics, these guys were able to start coordinating this effort in late April of 1906, and by November of 1906, they told the IOC they were prepared to host the 1908 Games. And a big part of why they're able to do this in such a short amount of time was the Franco-British Exposition. Oh, we're back to World's Fair shenanigans. (laughs) We're not going to go too deep into what this was, just because we've already talked at length in earlier episodes about World Fairs and exhibitions and the like, and this is more of the same, including more horrible exploitation of people from their colonies and the whole nine yards. Did they they double down on the names? Is it the exploitative round robin <laughs> tournament this time or they didn't the actually ministry of yeah. <laughs> human rights abuses or whatever there was no anthropology days hmm. so don't worry about that okay so it's not the high water mark <laughs> no no st louis is kind of like the worst of anything that we talk about ever <laughs> so anyway uh so what makes the franco-british exhibition different Ever since losing the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, the French had been cozying up to the British for trade and being allies and all that kind of stuff. The Franco-British exhibition was intended to encourage these friendly feelings. Only French and British exhibitors were permitted to participate, so they wouldn't have any American or German or anybody else in shoving them, showing them up the way the Germans put a better show in than the French at the 1904 World's Fair. Um, and I think the Germans did a really good job at the 1900 parisian fair too they had like a whole like they built like a big german beer hall or something like it was yeah that sounds great <laughs> yeah no they did really the americans did real well the 1900 french exhibition or something i can't remember exactly um but yeah so that was why only the french and the british were allowed to exhibit this one because they didn't want anybody else to be better than them at their own fair it's a really good world's fair when your only allowed entrance are the two countries you have like a 40 minute train ride between them and nobody else on the, on the globe <laughs> well i mean the other people on the globe were their colonies uh, also fair <laughs> um this thing was massive set on a 140 acre site in west london called shepherd's bush it opened on may 14th 1908 and closed october 31st 1908 the course of those months, there were approximately 8.4 million spectators, and they took in about 420,000 pounds, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in contemporary money, the gross receipts were approximately 46,300,000 pounds, or about $65,200,000, so it was a success. Did it make a profit, though? Because there's been I, I, bookkeeping issues in previous games Yeah, the well. French pretended like they didn't make a... <laughs> profit off of theirs i think they made a profit off of this um besides the exhibition london was also a good choice because they already had a number of world-class venues in which to hold the various sporting events like we talked about that's why la is like the only city 
that ever actually comes out on top <laughs> in yeah. the bookkeeping with because they already have all the facilities. Uh, London at the time did. They had um, Bisley for shooting, I think, or Bisley, I don't know. Henley for rowing and Wimbledon, obviously. Yeah, Wimbledon is probably, like, that was the only one I had heard of. What they didn't have was anywhere they could use as a main stadium. So they had to build one. Somehow, the Olympic Organizing Committee convinced the exhibition authorities to build it for them as part of the exhibition. Brilliant. <laughs> the plan was to build an entire stadium complete with running and cycling tracks, a swimming pool, dressing rooms, and spectator accommodations, and supposedly co the cost of this would not exceed... 44,000 pounds in 1908 money, and I'm not doing that conversion again. It doesn't matter anyway because they completely blew that budget. <laughs> in return, the exhibition was to get 75% of ticket sales. To that stadium specifically? To the entire like Olympic oh. event, yeah. Um, after the question of where this thing was going to happen was settled... Oh, no, I think, yeah, the, to the events that happened... To the venues that they built, they would yeah. get a majority of the revenue. I mean, yeah. that seems reasonable. Yeah. At the question where this thing was going to happen was settled, they had to figure out how to pay for the day-to-day -day operations. So not just building the thing, but actually running it. Um, they tried to raise the money, but didn't even manage to get 3,000 pounds for it, with operating costs expected to be at least three times that. Lord Desborough, the guy who was really the power behind all of this, managed to convince Lord Northcliffe, the owner of the Daily Mail, to put a final appeal in the paper. They ended up raising over 12,000 pounds in a week. So much that the paper had to beg people to stop sending money. <laughs> By the time it was all said and done, the British Olympic Committee ended up with a 6,000 pound profit. <laughs> so Good for them. They made out on this deal. <laughs> like, now, the recipients of the Daily Mail, common peasants or more Lord Cambridge of Northgates or whatever set of names you just described? I, I mean, they were literate. And had disposable income mm. for a newspaper. So at least I would say middle class. Yeah. So circa 1908, it, that yeah. means very wealthy, presumably. I really don't know what the economic uh, stratification was like in Great Britain at the time. Like, it would assume I mean, high. Yeah, I mean, it was pro like, I, I don't know enough about that particular period of British history to really hazard a guess. Although I will, I want to say, because like, a complete side note, but I was just listening to the last podcast on the left and their series about Rasputin, right? And a lot of it happened in 1908. And, like, imagining Rasputin as a contemporary to everything that's happening. There's going to be Russian athletes here. Like... So, he should have come and competed. He'd be pretty good at, I want to say, swimming. <laughs> uh, basketball. His... He was tall. <laughs> like... Um... Anyway, uh, yeah, so the exhibition built the White City Stadium, a state-of-the-art marvel with a cinder-running track of one-third of a mile, a banked cycling track on the outside of that, a 100-yard swimming pool with a 55-foot retracta retractable diving tower, and 100 yards, or about 100 meters. That's twice what the length of an Olympic-sized pool. I'm sure that that's fine. Yeah. That won't cause a problem. <laughs> they didn't cause a problem there, but it's just that's how big this mm. thing was. Um, a full soccer pitch inside the running track and platforms for wrestling and gy gymnastics. Oh, I pictured raised platforms, but that's probably not what you meant. Yeah, I mean, they weren't straight on the ground. They were up a little bit. Okay, so but they... not like above the soccer field. No, probably not. Okay. Um, I, this, this thing, I think, got torn down later, so it's not even around anymore. That's a shame. Yeah. 
Uh, it was called the White City because of the white plaster work on the outside. The way it was laid out, spectators could watch track and field, cycling, gymnastics, swimming, and wrestling all at once. In the stands, the, the stands could fit 63,000 spectators in the grandstands and standing room for another 30,000 more. There were also luxury boxes for royalty, the Olympic Committee, and other really rich people, and then open-air boxes for the judges and press. The dressing rooms, located under the spectator grandstands, had enough room for 3,000 athletes. This place is massive. Yeah, I mean, there might be 3,000 athletes, but do they simultaneously need to be dressing? I don't know. Well, I guess for the opening ceremonies, that would be useful. Mm. They can just wear whatever to that, right? Well, yeah, but you have to corral them somewhere. Mm. Um... A note of interest, the London Athletic Club groundsman who laid the track, Charles Perry, also laid the track in Athens in 1896 and would do it again in Stockholm in 1912 and Antwerp in 1920, making him the only person to lay four Olympic running tracks. That's a good That's a good uh, professional fact for your business card, yeah. I think. <laughs> so construction, this is, this is the thing that's really crazy. Construction of the White City started on August 2nd, 1907. <laughs> And was completed in math there. Yeah, that's very fast. It was completed in less than a year, finishing up in time for the opening of the exhibition on May fourteenth, nineteen oh eight. How many parts of this were were under construction when they were walking or competing within it? Like they had it, finished it. It was done. Yeah, I don't know how many people like died in the process. Mm. This is usually what happens when you build like a massive stadium really fast is somebody falls and dies. But I don't think they kept track of those things in, in 1908. The, the unions weren't that strong. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly don't know. I'm just saying. But anyway, um, after the Olympics, the stadium would fall into disuse and decay. And while it was still used to stage various events up until 1984, it has since been demolished. Now the Amateur Athletic Association has their championships at the Crystal Palace. 1984 is actually not a short amount of time. Like, that's a... Uh... A solid 80 years of use out of the stadium? Well, yeah, but they weren't used... Like, they were using it as, like, a dog track and stuff, so... Is that not an Olympic sport? No. While this was being built, the IOC was finishing up some paperwork. Deciding if London was really where they were going to do it was a question that apparently still needed answered. What sports they were going to have and all that kind of stuff. Of the decisions they made, one in particular would be more significant than the rest. They decided that all the judges at the games should be British. I see zero problems with that decision. <laughs> the Greeks made a motion for an international jury of appeal, but that motion was not carried. I don't know. These people never listen to the Greeks. <laughs> they're the only ones who know what they're doing still. Well, they were fresh off the heels of these ghost games that we were in the process of wiping from history. We don't want to give them another in to the, to the procedures. <laughs> And while there was an Olympic village at the Intercalated Games in Athens, uh, they didn't have one of those in London. Most of the 1,500 competitors stayed at the Polytechnic Institute, but the Americans refused and decided instead to stay in Brighton and travel the 53 miles every day to compete. And that's 53 miles in uh, 1908 miles. It's the same distance. It just takes Probably longer. Probably takes a long, long yeah, time. Yeah, 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 because they... I don't know how they got there. Um, and learning from at least... Some mistakes, the entire program and rules for the sports were printed ahead of time in English, German, and French and sent to all the nation national teams well in advance of the games, which our hero, James Edward Sullivan, will not acknowledge. It, 
He's going to be he, the villain in this story he again. Will to get, yes, he's oh, he's the he's the guy. He's yeah. the the recurring antagonist, but will not acknowledge that they translated these rules into certain languages, or will, will not acknowledge that they had rules to sports. Like, yeah. what is the he? Well, controversy? no, he's going to be arguing about stuff like a lot. So, um, but we'll get to that. Um, again, more foreshadowing. Uh, James Edward Sullivan's still a jerk. Uh, the opening ceremony was held on July 13th. In these days, it was more pomp and circumstance, not quite as much spectacle. So a big procession of British royalty and their children, then con continental royalty, noblemen, statesmen, high-ranking military officers, ambassadors, and representatives from all the competing countries, other senior members from the diplomatic corps, and for the first time since 1900, Bar Baron de Coubertin himself. He presented the members of the IOC to the King of England. Lord Desborough asked the King to open the games, and he did. There was a fanfare. Then came the Parade of Nations and the first controversial event in an Olympics that would be dominated by controversial events. Eighteen nations were competing this time. Argentina, Australasia, which was a combined Australia and New Zealand team, uh, Austria, Belgium, Bohemia, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Great Britain, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Russian Empire, making their Olympic debut, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, another debut with Turkey, and the United States. Finland was almost not a participant, officially. Uh, they were still part of Russia at the time, and Russia didn't want them to have their own team. But the IOC decided to let them, a decision that was nearly moot due to the fact that the boat they were taking to Get was there, torpedoed by Russia. <laughs> got stranded for a time off the port of Hull with a defective boiler. They weren't allowed to march with their own flag, though, and were completely out of alphabetical order in the Parade of Nations because that defective boiler delayed them so much they barely made it to the ceremony at all. Wait, we do that in alphabetical order? <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, that makes so much more sense now. Yeah, it's it's in alphabetical order according to the lang the official language or dominant language of, of the, the country. country that it is. Yeah, and what names they call your country <laughs> so like um i'm trying to think of examples but i can't Espana versus yeah espania versus spain is a good one yeah so you know when but and then it's like the home country goes last because they always get the biggest applause um anyway uh yeah and finland wasn't able to carry their flag they had to do like a plaque that just said Finland, and they weren't allowed to have their flag because the Russians didn't want them to have their flag. Okay, again, Bohemia was still part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but de Coubertin was good friends with Jiri Guth, I think this is how you say it, uh, the IOC member from Bohemia, and so they got to compete as a national team. Ireland wanted to compete as their own national team, but if that wasn't going to fly in Greece with an international judging committee, it certainly wasn't going to fly in London with an all-British <laughs> judging committee. On the other hand, South Africa was not an independent country at the time, but they got to have their own team. And uh, I think Canada, too. Um, oh, the unwanted children of the British Empire yeah. always have. Or the ones who weren't trying to, like, violently well. overthrow. Again, there was some kind of clerical error that resulted in the Swedish and American flags being left out of the display of all the flags. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say switched to the other people carrying <laughs> them in the frame. An error that did not eliminate the flags of Japan and China, even though they weren't participating in the games. And while they quickly fixed this and got the American and Swedish flags up, the Americans were annoyed. And Sounds like us. And egged on by James Edward Sullivan. 
uh, which led to the beginning of a tradition we still hold to this day. The Americans did not salute the King of England. In 1906, and wherever That's else... also kind of our deal, though, is not saluting the King of England. This is where it started. Um, I think it started in, like, 1776. You know, I mean, this is, this is where this particular tradition of Americans not saluting royalty comes from. So, uh, in 1906, and wherever else this may have come up, the Americans did dip the flag to the local royalty whenever it was expected of them. So when they're doing the Parade of Nations, you go by the box with the, you know, local royals, everybody dips their flag a little bit to kind of salute them, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the Americans had done this every other time, except in 1908 they didn't. In fact, there were two occasions in which this was expected, and he didn't do it either time. It was uh, Ralph Rose was carrying the flag. One can assume this was an accident because he was supposed to do it twice and he didn't do it either time. Supposedly, Ralph Rose was encouraged by Irish-American athlete Michael Sheridan, who declared that the American flag, quote, dips to no earthly king. Although this wasn't actually reported until 1952, so it may be apocryphal. That's 40 years later. Yeah. (laughs) That's two world wars later. Um, for their part, the British press made little note of this, but it became something of a legend, and the reason why Americans supposedly don't have to salute or bow to foreign royalty. Like, if you ever look in, like, etiquette books, you're like, what am I supposed to do when I meet the queen? Like, they, I've if never met the queen. Yeah, but, like, I mean, this is a question that comes up, right? And it's always like... A firm you, handshake. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, if you... Or, the, like, any other, like, member of, like, the British royalty or whatever. We're, like, Americans aren't expected to curtsy or bow like other people oh, are. But if I'm abroad, I'm probably claimed to be Canadian at that point, so... Yeah. <laughs> yes, you definitely do if <laughs> yeah. you're Canadian, because she's still on your money. Mm. Like, <laughs> um, but, you know... I was going to say something really political there, but... <laughs> we'll fix it in post. Yeah. And with this auspicious start, two weeks of American-British bickering were off to a great start. Technically, the 1908 victims... Uh, victims. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 1908 games fell victim to the same problem of scheduling that the 1900-1904 games did, and even surpassed that. They are on record as having lasted 187 days, or six months and four days, making them the longest Olympics in the history of man. However, they did not handle this in the same way as Paris and St. Louis. Instead of having one event every day, or otherwise spreading out the games as much as possible, in London, they were clustered to a few periods. Basically striking a middle ground between the other World's Fair affiliate games and the more compact Greek games. So, technically, didn't close... For like six months, but they only had a couple weeks of competition. Two weeks of games. Everyone take a break. Hang out for four months. Yeah. Don't leave if you have another thing to compete in. I guess you're trapped here. <laughs> it'll, well, it'll, the London Games. You're trapped here. <laughs> That's kind of England's whole deal. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Rackets tournament began in late April. Shooting and lawn tennis were held from the 6th to the 11th of July, but the bulk of the competitions happened from July 13th to the 25th, with opening ceremonies on the 13th. This is when track and field, swimming, diving, water polo, cycling, wrestling, which I didn't put a comma between, so it just looks like cycling wrestling, which sounds amazing. Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> um, archery, gymnastics, tug of war, and fencing all took place in that two-week period. What about rope climbing? Uh, I don't know if rope climbing was an event, but it would have been, like, gymnastics, I think. Mm. Most of the competitions happening in the White City. 
Rowing and yachting uh, took place from the 27th to the 31st of July, with one yachting event, the 12-meter, held in Glasgow from August 11th to 13th. And we'll talk about why that was. Oh, um, I have it right here. Holding the yachting event in Glasgow was pretty significant, as that was the first time that events were spread out from the main host city like that. In fact, all the yachting and rowing competitions were held elsewhere. The rowing events were held at Henley-on-Thames, about 36 miles, or 56 kilometers, away from central London. And most of the yachting events were held on the Isle of Wight, off the coast of England. The reason the 12-meter race was held in Glasgow was because the only two boats entered in the race were both British, and both were in Glasgow at the time, so they just held it there, instead of making them go all the it way to seems, Isle of Wight and back. It seems easier to have all of the judges and presumably spectators <laughs> go to Glasgow. Yeah, uh, yeah. then have the boats go all the way to the Isle of Wight and then back. <laughs> boats can go places. That's their whole deal. <laughs> but you could just get on the train and go to Glasgow. That's instead. true. There are trains in Europe. Yeah. As, so this, so all, all told, the bulk of the games were held between July 6th to August 13th, a schedule much tighter than 1900 or 1904, though not as compact as either of the Greek games. I don't know why I wrote it this way because I didn't list what the actual sports were before now. So, you may be wondering, what about boxing, field hockey, figure skating, lacrosse, rugby, and soccer? I'd be surprised if you were because I haven't mentioned them before now. Figure skating, I think, is in the other set of Olympics in the winter. We call them the Winter Olympics. This is the first time that there were a slate of winter games. It is not considered the first win official winter games. That wouldn't happen until 1926, I think. I have 1920, but that's definitely not true. Uh, <laughs> these sports were held several months later as part of some special cold weather program of Olympic Games. The event started with soccer on October 19th, and the rest of the, game, of the sports took place over the next week and a half until finishing up with field hockey being the final game of the 1908 Olympics on October 31st. So that's why they officially lasted that long. I don't think... That soccer, football, is a winter sport. Yeah, uh, rugby's a summer game. They do rugby sixes now, and uh, field hockey, whenever, it is always a summer game. But we'll get into why. Um, <laughs> most of these events were held at the White City, except for boxing, which, again, is another summer game. Uh, you can which, box anytime. Yeah. Which You're was, inside, presumably. Yeah. Which was at the Northampton Institute, and figure skating, which was at the Prince's Skating Club in London. You're also inside for figure skating. That's true. <laughs> that should be a summer game. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. Really makes you think. <laughs> so, we're going to go out of order and talk about the Winter Games first. Because the feud between the Americans and the British is going to take a, a while to unpack in this will fit in the episode lengths better. And we had finished that feud by the time the Winter Games rolled around? Like, we had forgotten about it before October? Uh, not really, but... Uh, we had all gone home and bailed on the yeah, Winter Games yeah, for October? Much. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, now that I'm looking at the time, I don't know if we're going to do two episodes. This might fit into one. Um, anyway. It's okay. We'll cut that out when we <laughs> announced it at the beginning. And uh, the bit where I'm talking about, maybe it'll only be one episode when it's like... Uh, <laughs> we'll splice that into another episode later. All right, yeah. So also, we've gotten to the point where I can't really talk about 
every single sport of every single games. I'm going to try to focus on the more significant or interesting stories. The Winter Games of 1908 didn't have too many controversies, probably because they were more of a curiosity than the serious business of the Summer Games. Like still, and even to this day, track and field is kind of the big game, big thing of the Olympics. Although yeah. there's a gymnastics is up there and, you know, figure skating in the winter, but like, well, there are other tournaments for other sports. The yeah. World Cup is, you know, yeah, definitely. nominally more important than the soccer tournament of the Olympics. Definitely. It, there's some interesting stuff about what happened with the soccer tournament here related to that. But anyway. Um, yeah. And the, the, the Winter Games were more of a curiosity than the serious business of the Summer Games. Also, this is the first time we see the beginning of the problem that will plague every Winter Olympics after this. There just aren't as many winter sports. That's why we keep inventing new kinds of luge. Yeah. Luge but reverse. Luge but skeleton. Luge but biathlon. Yes. G yes. Luge but guns. <laughs> also, like, stop putting people on skis on snowboarding tracks. Skis but guns. That actually exists. <laughs> we, yeah, That's the real that. biathlon. Yeah, but what if the skis are also guns? Skiing on guns, then you throw skis at targets. <laughs> Reverse biathlon, and you have to go backwards. Yes. <laughs> right, um, if only we were affiliated with the IOC, we could implement these policies. Yeah, we are not. Um, most of the games that were included in the Winter Games were ones that we put in Summer Games now, if they're even included. Of the six games, only figure skating is still considered a winter sport. Snowball fights. But with guns. <laughs> Reading too American. You can't just put guns in everything. Mmm. That's it's the uh, it's Finnish, isn't it? It is Finnish. Yeah. See, it's celebrating how many Russians they killed. <laughs> a proud heritage. Anyway, the event opened with soccer or football. If you're outside the U.S., I'm going to keep calling it soccer just so I don't confuse myself and start looking for Johnny Unitas to show up in the research. You dirty yank. Yep. I am. Uh, eight teams entered the tournament, all world class. Side note: This tournament was actually run by FIFA. As sort of a subcontractor to the Olympics. Ooh, contracting and FIFA seem like they would go hand in hand. It's so easy to launder money through contracting it, work. It just doesn't seem like the IOC would get involved with, like, grifters and, <laughs> and con men. That's so strange. This was early in FIFA's uh, I'm, I'm saying history. the IOC You're implying are also that they were of, not corrupt at this yeah. point. Yeah. Is that the statement you were making? I don't know what... I don't know enough I'm about I'm saying they're FIFA. all corrupt. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> We're not affiliated. <laughs> We're not any... affiliated with AOC or FIFA. Do we need to put that in the disclaimer this yeah, time? That's why uh, we have no money. Because <laughs> no, well, we're not corrupt because we have nothing That's why we're not in prison, <laughs> yeah. but we're not affiliated with FIFA. We're also not on the run from the Russian government. Although, like, they're all, like, on the run in, like, really nice, sunny Caribbean countries, right? <laughs> yes, the nice Caribbean London... <laughs> They're rich. No, I mean like now. Oh, yeah. Mm. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Uh, so the eight teams, Great Britain, Sweden, Hungary, Netherlands, France had two teams, A and B. Denmark and Bohemia all entered. Unfortunately, on October 8th, 1908, the Austro-Hungarian Empire annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, an action that all 
ultimately was part of what led to World War One six years later, and I'm not going to get into it more than that because I don't understand it. <laughs> I can do it. No, I can't. Yeah. I need to look up. There was a podcast that, like, I heard recommended on multiple different podcasts about World War One and why it happened that I'm going to look up so I can, like, say the next episode. Yeah, that so, sounds like, super interesting. I would... I would listen to that podcast. Yeah. Maybe I would drop this one for that one. <laughs> Shut up. It's it's not like it all it's got like resolved a... in World War One, though. It yeah. just continued to be and continues to this day. To and be the, just a fun area. Speaking of uh, soccer, I read I read a quote once that like uh, Europe is so fanatical about soccer now because they they can't afford wars anymore. No, that's what Eurovision is. <laughs> soccer is incidental. So, um. But they yeah, can't I'll look up colonies anymore. That's I'll, what soccer's about. Look up the name. It's like a six-part series about what, why World War One happened. That apparently was very well researched and very engaging. And you know, you can fill in all these blanks that I'm just glossing over because I don't understand what it happened. Was, it was pop punk band Franz Ferdinand that started World <laughs> War One, right? With their uh, payola scandal. Yeah, this all <laughs> sounds right to me. Anyway, um, yeah, you can put so, that in your history test, kids. So anyway, in October on October eighth. 1908, the Austro-Hungarian Empire annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, and because of this, by the time the tournament started on October 19th, Hungary and Bohemia had to withdraw because they were all at war. Did they send? Did they like officially send a letter? Yeah, it's like sorry, can't come. We're they, at war. They sent a note. Like they were just at war specifically. Yeah. Was <laughs> that, mm. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know how they handled this, but I, they didn't show up, that's for sure. Um, okay, like, that's, that's different than sending a note. I want to know, what are the details? Oh, they on the official report, we have a quote. Thank you. They list the reason as, quote, political troubles in the Balkans. Uh, political just, troubles in the Balkans. I mean, that's the name, isn't it? There's probably <laughs> a the form letter for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, they were just, they just checked yeah. the boxes. <laughs> As if this isn't the most succinct description of 20th century European history you could imagine. <laughs> oh, just political troubles. You just have, in like, it's been how many days since political S- troubles in the Balkans? Schools canceled today. Oh, just political troubles in the Balkans. France's decision to enter two teams was misguided, to say the least. Maybe if they combined them, they could have come up with a better roster than whatever it was they had on two separate ones. As it was, Denmark defeated France B in the first round with a score of 9-0. to zero. That's a score that does not happen in soccer games very and often. Then, I think. Imagine being France Team B. And then <laughs> defeated, defeated France A in the second round with a score of 17-1. to one. Ooh. <laughs> And they got through the first round, right? France they may have had a, a bye. <laughs> oh. Oh, no. 17? Do they have a goalie? This is an Olympic record that has never been beaten. <laughs> There's never been a score that bad. I thought watching Russia play Saudi Arabia in a World <laughs> Cup match was a, just a horrible, ruinous attempt at something maybe that was once beautiful. <laughs> this sounds unholy. <laughs> was there a different point system back then? Is this like American football style rules no. where you get like three to seven points for everything you no, do? No, because they only had one. France scored one goal. It's possible to score one point in American football. It's unlikely. It's very unlikely. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Olympic, uh, an Olympic record. might not be possible. <laughs> that has never been beaten. One guy, center forward Sophus Nielsen, set another Olympic record 
in that match by scoring 10 points by himself. When cool. you say by himself, I'm imagining it. It, might have, just been, it might have been him on the field and yeah. no one else. And no yeah, one else they, on his team. They were all taking a break. Yeah, they were like, oh, let's try to give him a chance. And then Sophus Nielsen just ran circles around all the Frenchmen. Uh, the final match between Great Britain and Denmark was much more of what you would expect. They drew a crowd of 8,000 spectators, and Great Britain won with a score of 2-0. to zero. Is, is it okay that I'm just imagining all the French players standing around smoking cigarettes in berets? It's, it's the Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like a total side note, but uh, my toddler starts soccer on Friday, and I am so excited for this because I think toddler soccer is like the funniest thing in the world. And uh, it sounds like that's what that was. maybe yeah. they could beat the French team. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure. Like my my kid will, my kid will, he will run around with the ball, and provide a running commentary in this like breathless, excited announcer voice. And then whenever he kicks it real hard, he just runs around going, "Oh!" <laughs> that's how soccer works. Yeah, yes. he's ready. Yeah, yeah, he's so ready. He's gonna like. I don't. He Those doesn't really know what the goal is. Is the thing. Those are the. Those are the goals. Those are the rules. <laughs> it's he's a got it. game. Nobody yeah. really scores. <laughs> Scoring is not the main point of soccer. He also will pick up. It. He'll also pick up the ball and throw it every once in a while. That happens no in reason. soccer sometimes. I've yeah. seen that yeah. from the corners, maybe. I don't and know. the refs usually don't call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's ready. He's going to be a star. All right. And he's really good at throwing Ooh. himself to the ground. I was going to yeah. say, that's the actual... He does that all the oh, time. Oh, you got there first! Damn you! <laughs> okay, true story. We were at the playground, and he was running around with a soccer ball, and then he just threw himself down on the field, and there were these two people watching, and they started laughing, because he's fine. He isn't, like, crying or anything. And I was like, yeah, well, his dad's Italian. It kind of just comes <laughs> along with it. <laughs> Oh, you got this. He's ready. This he's ready. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely ready. I, I, I tried to give him like clutch his leg while he was doing mm -hmm. it, but he didn't understand that part yet. So he'll get there. He, he will. There's room to grow. Yeah. So anyway, he's got to learn something. Else, ten right? out of ten. Uh, lacrosse. There was no. only there was only one lacrosse match. There was supposed to be a tournament involving Great Britain, Canada, and South Africa, but South Africa withdrew. Uh, they held the. Hold on, that's three Great Britons. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they held it immediately after the soccer final, so there was a pretty big crowd to watch it, which probably wouldn't have happened otherwise, as pretty much nobody in London knew what lacrosse was. And those that did were probably confused by a game that didn't have quite the same rules that they were used to. There was little weirdness about how this was handled due to the fact that Canada and Great Britain had slightly different rules about how to play. To deal with this, they decided to split the difference. So the ball was in between the, the weights of the regulation balls. The Canada played with a slightly heavier ball. How did they have balls on hand that were halfway between the two regulation weights? I don't know. They may they have just, just made them. shave off part of the larger ball? Like, I don't know what a lacrosse ball even looks like to it's guess. It's like a sphere. Uh, yeah, but was it made out of? I don't know. Lead. Okay. Well, then they just <laughs> added more lead to it. <laughs> That's probably not true, but... No, I don't think You can look it up at home. Yeah. Um... The goal crease was bigger, and the offense couldn't go in it, and instead of two halves, they played four quarters. Fortunately, both national teams were very, very good. Before this, whenever a Canadian team would go to England to play lacrosse, it was usually just one of the teams from Toronto. But the Canadian national team took their time to build a solid team of their best players from all over Canada, including athletes from Montreal, Cal Calgary, Ottawa, Cornwall, Toronto, St. Catharines, Orangeville, and New Westminster. Great Britain did their best as well. Canada led 5-1 to one at the quarter, and then 6-2 to two at the half. 
England rallied in the third quarter to tie it 9-9, but in the final quarter, Canada pulled ahead to win 14-10. They also displayed excellent sportsmanship. For example, one of the Canadian players, Angus Dillon, broke his stick and had difficulty finding a replacement. So English player R.G. Martin decided, agreed to sit out until Dylan could get another stick so as not to give them an unfair advantage. Oh. So. Uh, sounds or like a really good cross two game. sticks. They're <laughs> smaller. But if you put a, another basket on the, the other half, dual wielding. Boxing. The entire boxing <laughs> tournament. Dual wielding. <laughs> the entire boxing tournament was held on a single day, October 27th. The first matches started at 11.25 a.m., and the finals concluded at 10.30 p.m. This resulted in two boxers, Frederick Spiller, uh, that might not be his real name because it looks like autocorrect changed it. Sorry. Can I get Frederick. from a new name? No. Oh, is that the boxing? Huh? No, no I... it's not, but I love this guy's name is Leon Cockleberg, and I've been <laughs> I've had it in the back pocket, and if he needs a new name. <laughs> I'm just providing it. Is this one of the sports where they were using uh, stage names as it was? They had fight names. In they the may have yeah. been. His I name is Cockleberg now, okay, please. Okay, it's Cockleberg. Frederick Cockleberg. It's all that I've ever wanted. And Reginald, quote, Snow... Or, Reginald... Reginald Snowy Baker. His nickname was Snow. Quote, the Snow. <laughs> Sorry. Quote. I see the quotation. The quotes are actually yeah. written out. It's like... I he, think the quotes are important really... there because you might think that's their actual middle name. No, it's a, it's a nickname. And now we know that it's not. To compete in... So these two guys competed in four bouts in one day. Four countries were represented at the tournament. Great Britain had 32 boxers, France 7, Denmark 2, and Australasia, Australia had one. Of the 15... That person might have been from New Zealand. Let's not no, assume. no, he was from okay. Australia. Okay. That's why I had that listed. Uh, of the 15 total medals to be won, Great Britain won 14 of them. Reginald, uh, Reginald Snowy Baker of Australia... Excuse me, Snowy Baker of Australia won the silver medal in the middleweight class. Shocking. Australians good at punching people. Snowy Baker is the greatest all-around Australian athlete to have ever lived. Because he, he was good at punching things. He was good at a lot of things. He competed in the 1908 Olympics in boxing, diving, and swimming. He was also on Australian international rugby and water polo teams. Diving is just punching the water. He yeah. Also, you have to be able to punch a koala at like two paces to live in Australia. Two he paces. also competed at the state or national level in cricket, track and field, and rowing. Sometime after these Olympics, he became a movie star and stuntman. His nickname came from his snowy white hair. This all fits in with everything that I know about Australians. Yeah. And everything that I know about Australians comes from Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> he's Chris Hemsworth's grandfather. No, he's not. But, like, what if, Crims, <laughs> what if Crims Hemsworth plays him in the biopic? <laughs> he could. It's happening. Uh, rugby. A man who punched his way to destiny. This film writes itself. They tried to make rugby a serious Olympic sport in 1908, especially after the disappointing turn in 1900, but it kind of fell flat. South Africa and New Zealand refused their inv invitations. They just said no. Good start. It is a really serious sport that is mostly about men wearing the shortest shorts that you've ever seen in your life. They do have it now. They do, like... Yeah, but that's, oh, no, what, that's what the sevens. sport's about. Rugby sevens. That's what rugby's about, yeah. okay? It's a hollow tradition it's a beautiful game it's there's a beautiful game I'm there's a tear in my eye the burly men in tiny shorts tiny tiny I shorts love it anyway so they're all crawling all over each other it's, it's great it's, it's wonderful great. It's fun for the whole family yes uh anyway Frank stares into the middle distance <laughs> <laughs> i spent the first half of the conversation thinking you were talking about cricket <laughs> 
No, that is not a beautiful game. And I thought you'd hang on Polo. Did Cricket. they ever? Did they ever get Cricket into the games? I don't know, but Cricket also has like break for tea time, which I think is lovely, and every game should have that. No, that defeats sport. No, I'm not. I'm mad about this now. I didn't know about that, and now I'm furious. Well, because a lot of games do have break for tea. Seventh inning stretch is basically tea time. Halftime is basically tea time. You're listing sports that are too long. Any game that has you have to take a break in the middle of it, it's too long. Probably has a break. End seven hours long. It's got end it. Yeah, WrestleMania should be 15 minutes. (laughs) Baseball games should be 20 at max. (laughs) I will fight you on this. Everything's too long. I don't have this kind of time. Soccer games could be well, 45 I have bad news. minutes. This Olympics cool. lasted eight months. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mad about that, but we'll get to it. <laughs> All right, so uh, South Africa and New Zealand just flat out refused their invitations. Ireland, Scotland, and Wales just ignored theirs. Uh, you know, like when you invite a bunch of people to an event on Facebook and half of them never reply, that's what Ireland, Scotland, and Wales did. <laughs> that just means no. They <laughs> checked the maybe. Standard yeah, they checked the maybe. And maybe the also means up. no. <laughs> Australia, France, and Great Britain were the only teams who entered. It means I hate you. But one week before the tournament was supposed to start, France withdrew with the Ooh. excuse that they couldn't get a team together. So the 1908 Olympic rugby tournament was one game, Australia versus Great Britain. Oh, dear God. The Australian national team was in the middle of a five-month tour of Great Britain and doing very well. By the time the Olympics rolled around, they had played eight matches and won seven of them. The British national team, on the other hand, was in the middle of touring Australia and New Zealand at the time. Hmm. The British Olympic yeah. Committee sent them a letter asking them to come home early for oh, the no. Olympics, but the team never got that letter. Oh, hijinks. <laughs> Australian government hijinks. Possibly. They stole the letter. I mean, it might have fallen into the active volcano. It's they were like, please, sirs, <laughs> continue to enjoy our delightful Australian hospitality. And then they Meanwhile, sent snakes. Feeding, feeding it to a koala in the yeah. background. And they sent snakes they after them. They would have like, oi, mate, you never got that letter. <laughs> they, they gave them the letter, but it was covered in spiders. <laughs> so, um, Just some real Australian hours. So the British sent their best local team, Cornwall, to the Olympics. <laughs> Oof. Good for Cornwall. Cornwall had won. Silver medal. <laughs> Not, Guaranteed not good. silver medal, at least. Boom. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to th- feel like we're going to hear about a performance that did not deserve a silver medal. <laughs> Cornwall had won the English County Championship in March. This wasn't the worst decision they could have made. However, they <laughs> they could have gotten some orphans off the street. Yeah, You're right. you can always pick up boys. <laughs> Unnamed boy. Bring me a b- team of boys. The best boys you can find. The ones from that sculling match. <laughs> yeah, just like go down to the orphanage, ra- wrestle up some boys. Y'all want to play some rugby? You want to be a star? It always However, Cornwall had also played the Australian teams three weeks before the Olympic match and lost eighteen to five. Hell yeah! The weather was miserable. The Times described it as a dark afternoon in a Scotch mist. The ground Ooh. was slippery and the footballs in a perpetual state of greasiness. I think that that is Scots, yeah. Scots missed the place, not Scots missed the alcohol. I but who's to know? But also, love love greasiness is a descriptor. Yeah, for That's the balls. Downright the worst word you could choose. Greasy balls. Ew. Oh. Nobody wants greasy balls in their rugby. Maybe some do. The Australians won. <laughs> 32 to 3. Jesus Whoa. Christ. 
<laughs> with Bert Solomon of Cornwall. Why don't you just call it? <laughs> winning their lone field goal. This is like, what was it? This Was it soccer in in? Uh, 1906, where the Greeks just didn't come back after halftime. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah, yes. That was the halftime speech so bad they all just veiled earlier to the pub. Yeah. Do that. That's It's a better way to live. Uh, Bert Solomon scored Great Britain's lone field goal. This was just one stop on Australia's tour, though. One they would wrap up a few months later with a record of 26 wins and 5 losses, scoring a total of 438 points and giving up only 100. 46. The team captain, Dr. Moran, would say later of this tour in his autobiography, Viewless Winds, that his greatest achievement as captain was to get the team home after five months away without a single one of them contracting venereal disease. I mean, that is pretty good impressive. on him. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's a gaggle of Australians that all went home, everything was intact. <laughs> Nobody died of syphilis. And that's an achievement. That is. Not every Olympics can even... <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> yeah, forget those people who, like, died of typhoid or whatever. There were a lot more... <laughs> there are a lot of deaths from the Olympics that we're not talking about. I was just talking about the swimming pool that I think actually gave everyone syphilis. <laughs> oh, probably. Also so the life-saving lake. Is that how syphilis works? The swimming hole in Atlanta, right? I don't Not know. Atlanta. It was St. Louis. I don't, I don't know enough about it. We haven't gone to the Atlanta sure. Games. There was a bombing. We'll talk about it. Anyway. That's a long time that from now. That is a long time from now. That's like years from now. Anyway, figure skating. Atlanta doesn't even exist in 1906. Oh, perfect. That's yeah, a they, fact. They got, they got burned down. Oh, Sherman yeah. burned there. Oh, crap. Actually, yeah. That's <laughs> was this kind of a good point. contemporary with that event? That was definitely in, during the Civil War. That was only like 50 years ago. That was definitely within living memory. Man, history sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about, um, actually looking at the timestamps, this is going to be two episodes, but we'll talk about a guy. We're back on track. Yes. We're going to get I to knew four. these distractions were going to pay off. I think we can get her to four. If you distract me enough, but we're almost done with this. Figure skating. That's what you think. <laughs> we're going to talk about figure skating. I'm excited about this. This is like the proto-Yuri on ice. Yes. The this is the first time figure skating was an Olympic medal sport in 1908. 21 men and women from six nations, uh, Argentina, Germany, Great Britain, Russia, Sweden, and the U.S. competed in four events. There were five judges for each event, and I've tried to make sense of how the judging worked, and it's kind of nutty and difficult to understand. No was one this, knows how it works today. Was yeah. this long enough ago that you had to literally skate figures? Like, yes. draw the eight. Draw a square. That was a solo event you could win a medal for. Which sounds super interesting on no. paper, but I hear it's very boring. No, it we is, had to watch a documentary. It's terrible. It's Docu the worst. Mm. It's the worst I don't know thing. why you think it sounds good. It's bad. It's literally... It's and the, like, here's the thing. They're making a shape that you could see from above, yes. right? You are not watching them from above. I mean, presumably I am, because I live in the future. They wear their sparkly outfits while they're doing it, though. That's but they're like not the moving thing fast that's... enough for it to be sparkly. Yeah, it's just kind of like unsparkly sequins. This is literally a set of power moons in Mario Odyssey, though. You have to draw a shape on the oh ice my like God. that is two of the moons. It's not as fun as Mario Odyssey, okay? It's bad. It's bad, actually. And they should feel bad. So... If enough people draw the same circle on the ice, Look, they might carve through the lake and drop a chunk of that ice. That was not the how it happened. This was like before there were like jumps, though, and things, right? Yeah, I know you're getting to it. I know I'm trying not to blow up your thunder. All I'm saying is they were like, these are the cool things you could do on ice: draw shapes. 
Ulrich Saukow was there, so he's about to blow y'all's mind. He's, he's gonna do something. <laughs> yeah, Magical. So, from what I can tell, the judges w- could give a score on technical merit and a score for artistic merit. Each had a max of six points for a total of 12 points max from each judge, which was then multiplied by 14 for some reason. I do not understand why. Because math. So, something something imperial system. This is what the book not said. A good number to multiply something, by. Something imperial system. That's what the book said, but I don't understand the point of that. This is, again, Bill Mallon, uh, the uh, History of the Olympics sure. series. Look. This is the another book of his. Just don't question it. I'm not questioning the 14. Don't question the British. Ever. You question the British constantly. Yeah, I know. On but this I'm allowed show. to. I've decided that you're not. Okay. You're mad about this. I'm not mad about this. I'm curious. You're a also, little mad. Because I, I forgot to, to cite this earlier. I have like this big extensive bibliography that I haven't posted anywhere, but I'm keeping track of all my we'll put it in the show notes. But yeah. Just get it tattooed I'm, on I'm your I'm committing arm. you to putting it in the show notes. The okay, so the, the there were some additional sources, but the majority of this information for this these this whole series on the 1908 games comes from the 1908 Olympic Games results for all competitors and all events with commentary co-written this time by Bill Mallon and Ian Buchanan. I'm gonna I'm gonna call you and say that says the 1912 Olympics. That is, it's part of the series. I just brought it over okay. so I would get the... Alright, I'm just questioning that whether everything you've told us has been a lie. <laughs> that is the number of the Olympics uh, with 14 added to it for arbitrary oh, reasons. Oh, okay. No, the, the thing is, I had to return the 1908 book to the library and I got out the next one for starting research on the next one. So, anyway. Oh my god, spoilers. Yeah. But uh, but after more Olympics? after 1912, this is the last book Bill Mallon wrote. So I'm gonna have to like find other We're sources. Just winging it after this. Ooh, I'll make some stuff up. Yeah, the, me too. Well, the thing is, is like We're helping. We're gonna, we're gonna help. Starting in 1920, they have like official reports, which they didn't have before that. So that's where the Bill Mallon cool. books come in. We're gonna make some stuff up. We are. It'll be great. <laughs> so, um, anyway, that's what the book said about multiplying by 14. Uh, I don't understand the point of that. They had different judges for each event, but they were all from the countries that were competing. Uh, let's just go so. with they know more about figure skating than us, and it all makes sense in their heads. Probably. Yeah, just, uh, I guess. <laughs> it was also the first time an internet in an international figure skating competition had four events: men's individual, women's individual, and pairs. And the and the men's had two events. So the fourth event was for men, and it was called special figures. Yes. Figure skating as a sport got its start in people carving figures in the ice with their skates. Which is awesome. This is where the whole figure eight thing comes from, and carving a circle in the ice until the whole lake falls in, or whatever cartoon nonsense Frank thinks happens. So they had an event for men to do just that. So you could just get a medal in... I feel attacked. You should. You should. Special figures. Uh... Can they, could they skate a triangle? I guess. I don't know. I have Were no they given idea. the shape at the time? They didn't know what shape it would be. And I then they flashcard. Literal flashcard. Oh, yeah. I have no idea. Did an angry German man bark shapes at them? <laughs> I don't know. Control um, sergeant. The man who won the special figures gold medal was a Russian athlete, Nikolay Kolomenkin. Yeah, that sounds like something Russian people would be good at. He was competing under the pseudonym Nikolay Panin. And the IOC knew this, which is why he wasn't disqualified like all those boxers in 1904. 
because sports were considered undignified by the Russian elite at the time. Oh boy! Yeah. All right. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like it's just enough. It's just artsy enough. But they, there's also rules that's like very Russian. Like wait, hell yeah, this sport we're do or this. all sports? All sports. They've been coming to the Olympics before now. No, they're they doing. This, this is, is <sighs> this is their Olympic debut. Huh? Oh. And right. They still kind of only consider ice skating to be. No, they're li- really into rhythmic gymnastics and all the track and field events. Which is kind of also ice skating. These are all similar. So and hockey, this... it's all the same. Did it all they, did they have the a same doping mid. scandal for figure skating? Not in 1908. Everybody mm-hmm. everybody was on strychnine. And That's and true. And laudanum. Yeah. Yeah, you can't stop skating. <laughs> Everyone was drunk. It was a different time. Anyway, sports were considered undignified by the Russian elite at the time, but like hanging out with frickin' Rasputin wasn't. Uh, yeah, what are you talking about? That sounds awesome. <laughs> Kolomenkin would go on to write a landmark work on the international style of figure skating in 1910, though it was never translated in English. He would also return to the Olympics in 1912 to compete in team a team shooting event. The pairs event only had the free skate. Despite the Russian elite's eschewing of athletic competition, the first pairs figure skating championship had been held earlier in the year in February in St. Petersburg. Uh, so this was the second international competition for pairs figure skating ever. German pair Anna Hubler and Heinrich Berger won, beating two Brit- married British pairs, Phyllis Johnson and James Johnson, who won silver, and Madge Sires and Edgar Sires, who won bronze. The German pair had also won that championship in St. Petersburg. This gold medal made Anna Hubler the first German woman to win a gold medal at the Olympics. Nice. The first German w- woman to win any kind of Olympic medal was individual skater Elsa Reinschmidt, Reinschmidt, who won silver. Dorothy Greenhouse Smith of Great Britain won sil- won uh, bronze, I guess, because I said she won silver. Maybe she tied. And Madge Sires, the pair's bronze medalist, won gold. There were only two figure skaters in the history of the Olympics to win two medals at a single games which was Madge Sires, who won for pairs and individual, and Ernst Bayer of Germany in 1936. I saved the men for last, even though I think chronologically they went first, because I'm really excited to tell you about this gold medal winner. In fact, I'm going to give you a few facts about him and see if you can guess who it might be before you Crash McCree. No, it's not Crash McCree. He was Swedish. He was the reigning world champion from 1901 to 1905, and again from 1907 to 1911. He won nine European championships from 1898 to 1913. He retired after 1913, but came back to the sport for one final competition in 1920 and came and came in fourth at the age of 43. He served as the president of the International Skating Union from 1925 to 1937, but perhaps his greatest contribution to the sport is the jump named after him. Oh, the quad Lutz. No, it's not Lutz. Triple Axel. It's not Axel. That's also a guy, though. I'm getting closer. You are. It's Ulrich. She said his name already. I did. I said it earlier. It's Ulrich Salkow. Was the first men's individual figure skating gold medalist. The Salkow, the jump he invented, is when the skater takes off from the back inside edge of one foot and lands backwards on the outside edge of the opposite foot. A jump he didn't actually invent until 1909, so he didn't even do it at these Olympics. His real strength in these games was compulsory figures. <laughs> yes. 
to the point where fellow fit Swedish skater Richard Johansson actually beat him in the free skate, but not by enough of a margin to make up for how high his compulsory figure score was. God, just adding the word compulsory to that just makes it sound so much more boring. <laughs> it is horrible. Nikolay Kolomenkin competed and participated in the compulsory figures part of the competition, coming in second, but then withdrew before the free skate. Why is not entirely clear as there are conflicting reports. Either he got sick and couldn't compete. Or he got so bored he carving was, these figures into the... <laughs> or he was so annoyed by how the judges scored the compulsory figures that he quit. Sal Cow had entered in this special figures competition, the one Kolomenkin won, but didn't end up actually competing. I feel like there might be a story there, but as far as I've been able to find it, it find it is lost to history. Anyway, field hockey. And this is where we're going to finish up, because we just oh, hit... Okay. Yeah, Field hockey. Originally... Only three countries were going to participate. Great Britain, Germany, and France. However, the Irish did not appreciate this and held an emergency committee meeting on November 21st, 1907 to reject the proposal of a united Great Britain team. Scotland and Wales also rejected the proposal, and so there were four teams representing different parts of Great Britain, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And then France and Germany also competed. All the games were competed on the same pitch during the course of three days. So by the time the final rolled around, it was in pretty rough shape. England beat Ireland for the gold, with Ireland taking silver and Scotland Wales taking bronze. Or in other words, Great Britain swept. There was no closing ceremony after these games. There was one after the bulk of the summer games, which we'll talk about next time. But the final match marked the official end of the 1908 Olympics. Right, but if you're after the closing ceremonies, I don't think any of it counts. They, I, have, yeah. I have a breaking news update that I'd like to share. What's that? Which is that I've discovered that Leon Cockleberg lost his race by what it says here, inches. <laughs> we didn't cover races. No, no, this, no, is, this, next no we didn't. this page is labeled cycling. I, we didn't, he we lost didn't cover a, this, he but lost I a, cannot... He lost a bicycle race by, by inches. inches. Oof. We'll get into bicycling next time. We're just finishing up now. There, I I can't, okay? I can't. It's, it's sitting here. I'm looking at it. It's all I can think about. Let's talk about... Let, can I finish this paragraph and then I'm we're sorry. done? I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, there was no closing ceremonies, uh, but the final match marked the official end of the 1908 Olympics, and they did hold a banquet reception for anybody who was still around after that. All the stragglers. That yeah. banquet, also after the closing ceremonies, also not official. <laughs> so... Uh, that's it for the first half of the 1908 Olympic Games. We're going to be talking about the second half later. You can follow us on Twitter at Olympic Size Cast. You can email us if you need to talk to us about anything at Olympic Size Podcast at gmail.com. I assume someone checks that inbox. I do. Okay. By inches. I check it <laughs> inches at a time. I check it. Um, and Send us a voicemail. At, don't. Uh, no. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Uh, fix that in post. Get a Google voice number. I'm going to leave you a voicemail of me just laughing and saying by inches. Email us an MP3 of your voicemail yes. at 206 at gmail.com. <laughs> you guys don't call me now. 